Amos 6, we hear these words from the prophet. Hear now the word of God. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. And to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you noble men of the, most, of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come, go to Kalmei and look at it. Go from there to great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choices choicest lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and, the, and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relatives are, who comes... Uh, to carry the bodies out of the house, to burn them, ask anyone who might be hiding there, is, is anyone else with you? And he says no. Then he will go on to say, Hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Excuse me. For the Lord has given command, and he has smashed the great house into pieces, and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you, you turn justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim from our own, by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way to Lebo Hamath, to the valley of the Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, when, uh, when you think about the Old Testament, many people don't like reading the Old Testament. Did you know that? Many people don't like it because they don't, one, understand it completely, and two, um, they really don't like what they read there because God is a God who is just. And when you think of how God acted in the Old Testament, he brought a people out of slavery from Egypt into a land of promise. And he said to them there, he said, as long as you worship me, if you love me, if you serve me, I will bless you. I will keep your enemies back. I will make bountiful your fields. You will have plenty in all that you do, and I will protect and keep you as the Lord. But the day you turn away from me, the day you reject me and begin to worship the other idols, 
or the idols of the people I have allowed you to throw out of the land, in that day I will abandon protection of you. Your crops will begin to fail. Your land will become impoverished. And your enemies will have victory over you. That was the promise of the Old Testament. It was called the covenant of the land. And it's important because as we look back on this message of Amos, it's, a, it's applicable for us this morning in dealing with more than anything else, understanding that though God is merciful and loving and just, or I should say most merciful and loving, he is also just. Uh, I, I love uh, when I was growing up, I, I had... Uh, I had been told by my father to not go to one of the gas pumps on our farm and never to touch the gas pump. Well, what do you think I did as a kid? Yeah, I went out and not only touched it, I took the, the gallon bucket and filled it halfway with gasoline while no one was there. And then I took it into the barn and poured it on the floor, part of it, and put the other half on the side and then took a match and lit it. And as I stood there watching the fire, I know some of you in the back are saying, man, if I'd known this about you, I wouldn't want you to be my preacher. <laughs> it's okay. If I'd known things about you, I wouldn't want to be your preacher either. <laughs> but as I lit that fire and it began to burn, I thought, wow, how beautiful that is. I had no idea how much danger I was in. None whatsoever. The gasoline was still open that it had left unpoured. It could have ignited and caught the entire place on fire and burned me up. But then I heard the screen door slam in the back of the house and knew I was facing judgment. Yeah. My dad was coming toward the barn and I kept trying to throw dirt on the fire to put it out. Well, that doesn't work with gasoline, does it? No. I was scared out of my witless mind until he stood beside me and we both looked at the fire as it burned and he said to me, he said, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I said, yes. He said, do you realize how much danger you're in? And I said, no. He was very patient and kind and loving. But then he said, you must be punished. Why? Why couldn't he just say, you're forgiven? Because I hardened him? Because I did something to harm my father? No. I had to be punished because I had done something to harm me. And more importantly, I had done something that had violated God's order in creation. I I'd failed to honor my father and mother. I did not obey them. Isn't that something? Now, fast forward to today, when Cindy and I had a young daughter in first grade, we went to that school and found that in her class in that year, which was 26 years ago, 26 years ago, there was in that class probably 34 children, and of that class, only three of those children had a mother and a father in their home. And so as I think about the culture that we're living in, we're living in a time when our country 
is leaderless. Our churches are leaderless. Our families are leaderless. What does that have to do with the passage this morning? Well, what we read from Amos chapter 6 deals with the issue of leadership. It deals with the issue of leadership. And let me ask you pointedly, who are you following? Who is influencing your life this morning? Very important question, even for Christians. Because we're living in a time where it's so easy to listen to all kinds of voices from churches that, temp, that are attempting to lead us in a direction. And if we're not careful, we will be attending voices that do not lead us to God, but away from God. And so Amos was not alone in this. There were many prophets in that day who were telling the leaders, we're doing great. We've got all the money we need. We're, we're so well off. God is blessing us. And then you hear this message from chapter 6 and you go, no, they're not. But why couldn't they see it? Well, it's because of the leadership. You say, well, what's, what's so important about leadership? Well, Phil, Peter Drucker, and there are a number of quotes I have for you, but Peter Drucker said that the only, the, uh, the, the definition of leader is someone who, who has followers. Isn't that true? But is that really leadership? Warren Bennis, an expert in leadership, said leadership is the, is the capability to translate vision into reality. Uh, that's, that's true. Where we are now as a country, as a church, as a people, is pretty much been because of the influence of someone who was trying to lead us with a vision to what we are experiencing in our life today. Bill Gates, anybody know Bill Gates? Well, you know, he's become an expert on everything. Why not leadership? Well, he says, as we look ahead to the next century, leaders will be those who empower others. Empower them to do what? John Maxwell, a Christian leader, a motivational speaker, says leader is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Tony Robinson, ever heard of him? Motivational speaker. He says, leadership is the ability to inspire a team to achieve a certain goal. And the true leader, the true leadership definition is to influence, inspire, and help others to become their best selves, building their skills and achieving their goals all along the way. Now, here's the question. Does any of those definitions define what leadership is according to God? And the answer is no, they don't. Why? Because leaders are those who serve. Now, you didn't hear that, did you? But leaders, in God's view, are those who are called to be servants. It, it concerns me that those who go to Washington, D.C., in our nation, for many decades now, go as people who have very little income, or maybe they have a modest income and they retire from politics with multi-millions of dollars. And you say, well, that doesn't happen to everybody. That's true, it doesn't. But when it does, you have to ask the question, where did all this money come from? What did it buy? What influence does it have? When you look at what happens in churches, 
There are people who withhold their giving to churches because the preacher or the elders don't do exactly what they want them to do. And so they withhold their giving, not for any other reason, but to say, I don't like you, and I think I can do a better job of leading. And you look at this and you think, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, here's the problem. In Israel in that day, it wasn't that there were a lack of leaders. There were people all over the place telling people how to live and what to do and how to please God. The problem was those leaders weren't servants who were leading people to God and obeying God. How do I know that? Well, if you go back to chapter 6, look very carefully. You will see something quite amazing as as Amos deals with the problems of their culture, he deals not with the people doing things that are attestable to God. He deals with the leadership that seems to have complacency. Well, what does that mean? Well, notice he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Well, what, what's he talking about? Well, look at verse 2. Go to Kelna and look at it. Go from there to Hamahath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. He, he's talking about the towns that Israel has absorbed into its influence through, through conquest. Through their military power, they have taken these cities from once what was called Phoenicians and has absorbed them into their, into their influence of power. And they are saying, man, look at what we have done in our conquest, our power. And then he says, uh, Amos says to the people, look at those places. Are they as rich as you are? Are they as powerful as you are? And the answer is no, they're not. How did that happen? How did we as a country get to be so powerful? How did this happen? It happened because of our military strength. That's what they thought. You see, the leaders were complacent because they believed that because they were in power, that their policies, their leadership has caused all of this to happen. Now, when you think of the leaders of Israel, the national leaders, you have to understand that these national leaders were people who were not just the king. They were the priests. They were the, they were the uh, prophets. They were the people who advised the kings. And, and they were, more than anything else, the people who, in all of the scheme of things, we would say were the judges, the governors, the king, who is an authority, all his advisors, and the, and, the, and the royal, I'd say you could say the royal spiritual leaders of the nation. All of these leaders believed more than anything else that they were truly leading the nation into what was good and right. And so when you think about these prophets, uh, they would utter the second woe over the carelessness of the nations, over the heads of the nations. What is that about? Well, they were complacent, meaning they were satisfied that they were making money. They were satisfied they were growing in power. And they were satisfied that they believed it was because of their influence. And God had nothing to do with it. But secondly, they were also secure. 
because they knew the people would do nothing to change how things were. Isn't that something? It's one thing to have leaders who lead us to do what's right. It's a whole different matter when you have leaders who enjoy their power and prestige and lead people to do nothing but whatever they want as long as they retain the power. As long as they stay in control. As long as their pockets get heavier with gold. They are satisfied. And what was happening during that time was the nation on the exterior seemed to be wealthy and growing more wealthy by the moment. But in fact, they were growing poorer by the day. And so what does God do? He begins to tell them. Look in verse 3. He says, you put off the day of evil and you bring near the reign of terror. What is he saying? He says, because you've become complacent to the problems that have been caused by your sins, because you will not address them, because you will not face them and deal with them before a holy God, you are storing up for yourselves a wrath to come that will utterly destroy you. I remember a young man in this church who is now with the Lord, Doug Dalton. Doug was a, a lineman for Duke Energy. He was part of the crews that put up all the poles around here that are carrying lines of electricity and everything else. And he said to me one day, he said, I can remember the day that I, I came to know God. And I said, really? He said, absolutely. He said, I remember distinctly I had a, 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 a dream and at that night, I dreamed that I was dying, and I didn't know where I was going to go. And when I was dying, I realized I was not going to heaven, and I began to feel the fires of hell. And he said, I woke up and started screaming. And his wife, Bobby Lou, grabbed him and said, honey, are you okay? And he said, honey, I've got to go back to church. I, said, I literally thought, wow, God scared the hell out of him, didn't he? Then I asked Doug, I said, Doug, what, was, what do you think God was trying to tell you in that? He said, he said, Robert, I knew the difference between right and wrong. I knew what was sinful and not. But instead of listening to God and dealing with my sin, I was ignoring it to the point that I kept going down a road that only led me deeper and deeper into a life that didn't love God, didn't seek God, didn't want God. And I was miserable. And I said, Doug, was it my preaching that was leading you down that road? He said, you weren't here at the time. But I can tell you this, there was no one, no one who was telling me the path I was choosing was not toward God. And I held deep and hard about that. Do you know why? We are living in such troubled times. You hear no one, no one crying out, warning people. The roads that we are taking are leading us to hell. What is a hell? Hell is a separation from God. And so as you and I think about our life today, as we think about what is influencing us, what is leading us, the question is, who is there to point out the sins? Who wants to talk about sin? Nobody. 
We don't want to talk about that. When is the last time you heard anyone talk about wickedness? That word is completely unknown to our vocabulary today, isn't it? Even, and I dare say it, among those in church. We, we no longer grasp the horror of that word because we just assume God is going to forgive us. He's so forgiving. He's so loving. He's so gracious. That's what the Israelites sought. We'll never have to worry about our enemies taking over our country. We belong to God. He loves us. We're his people. And all the while they were saying that, they had built other altars worshiping other gods. Really no gods whatsoever. Idols. And some historians record that during the worship of these gods, these idols, these Israelites were taking their children and offering them as sacrifices. They would literally take the baby and put it on the altar and take a knife and cut the heart out in the name of their God in worship. And God would look down from heaven and say, I am so insulted. And so God begins to address their sin problem through Amos. He says, you put off that day and you, hey, you don't realize you are hastening the coming wrath that will come. Well, why? Why would they hasten it? Why would they hinder? Why would they try to ignore it? Well, look in verse 4. This is the reason they were ignoring their sins. Look at verse 4. It really is quite amazing. He says, you lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounges and lounge on your couches. Can't you imagine someone sitting back on a beautiful piece of furniture and just eating bonbons? Right? Look at verse 5. You strum away. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. What is he saying? Why, in every appearance, you're playing the tune that... Everyone thinks means you're worshiping God. You're singing the songs. You're writing new glorious music. Have you heard of the Church Hill song? Have you heard of that? There are churches now that won't even play music that was produced by that church, that once prosperous church that has now fallen in dis disarray. Why has it fallen in disarray? Because the leadership was not leading people to God. And God has brought his judgment on the church. I know you're just kind of going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It can't be that bad. Well, look at verse 6. You drink wine by the bowlful. Let me tell you, not just having a little glass of wine. They're drinking bowlfuls of wine, right? Now, for those of you who are wine drinkers and those of you who are teetotalers, I don't want to get in the argument about alcohol this morning. I just want to simply ask, can any of you drink a bowlful of wine? They were, they were intoxicated with their complacency. They were overwhelmed by how sweet the wine was so that they just couldn't stop drinking it. They just wanted more and more and more. Uh, someone said, wow, I can't believe you're wearing a suit this morning. And I said, yeah, it's because I've been on a diet and I finally got back into my clothes. <laughs> well, let me tell you, to do this, I have literally cut out everything in my life that was wonderful. <laughs> I've just cut it all out. 
And I've been happy to wear clothes again that I could wear. But there are moments when I just want to go to the pantry and eat a pound of chocolate. Why not? What does it matter? Yeah. Fill it up to overflowing. Can anyone live that way? Can a nation that spends itself into such horrendous debt continue the way it lives? Can it? Look at verse verse 7. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. Notice it's not God actively taking it away from them. It's the harvest of their activity. It's the natural outcome of such a life separated from God. It is the ultimate end of choices that have been piling up over and over. And because of that, God said, I'm going to put on display all that you have done. This second woe that we've read through, the prophet utters this second woe in the chapters. It, it, is, a, it is a call. It is a call to the careless nations of the, of the country to turn away from their sins. What, what sin? We're doing great. We're getting wealthy. We're growing stronger in power. We are popular in the country. We don't have to change anything. That, that call that they had was really quite amazing. They were content with the way things were. They didn't want to change. We've had that in this church, haven't we? We're content with how things are. We don't want certain things changed in our church. Why? Because we've always had it that way. Let me tell you, there is a real death to that kind of thinking because it puts what I want, what I desire above what God has asked us to do and perform in his name. Did you know that, that there are many churches languishing today because they have forgotten the purpose of the church? Can you tell me what the purpose of the church of Christ is? Is it to feed the poor? No. That's a byproduct. Is it to fund, is it to fund medical procedures? No. No. Well, what's the purpose of the church? It's to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me, that, that's where it becomes a very important thing. Do you, do you know what the gospel is? And, and what's even worse is if you don't know what the gospel is, then I am condemned as a leader because I haven't explained it to you. Do you, do you see that? And God says to the nation, your leaders have forgotten who I am and because they have forgotten who I am you don't know who I am because you follow them where are they leading you and the second thing that he points out in this these six verses is that the leaders don't believe that God is ever going to judge them 
They don't ever believe that. They're, they're just great. I mean, ugh, come on, seriously? You're going to talk about it? No, no. I, I, I'm, God is a God of love. He's going to love me. Even if I sin? Let me tell you, I asked my dad years later, remember the, the story about the fire and the barn and the gasoline? Remember that? I asked my dad years later, I said, Dad, why didn't you just take out a stick and tan my fanny? Because now that I was an adult, I would have beat that kid to death for doing that. I would have just really wrangled their neck, my neck. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said, when I came out and I saw the expression on your face and I saw the repentance in your heart, the realization that what you were doing was so against my word, there was no punishment that I could have given you that could bring that effect. And you know, he was right. Do you know I never went back to that gas pump and pumped gas again without his permission? I never lit a match and ignited gasoline ever again. Ever again. My wife will say, wait a minute, you, you lit a, a bonfire in the backyard the other day, didn't I? Well, I didn't do it for fun. See, what I'm really getting at is what God's desire for his people is not to punish for the sake of a sadomasochistic God who wants to inflict pain on you. God is loving and merciful and his judgments are meant to redeem you. To hinder you from destroying yourself. God, he loves you. Desperately loves you. And wants your heart to change so that you see the wickedness around you for what it is, which is wickedness. You know what the problem with that is? My heart doesn't see it as wicked. I only see it as pleasure. And when I do, I become complacent to the things of God. I no longer care for what God desires. Wouldn't you like to be the preacher that has to deliver that message? Amos had to. He had to go to those divine leaders and tell them not only were they ignoring God's warning of judgment, that these leaders reveled, reveled in their riches. Ah, reveled it. Yeah. You know, I remember days when I reveled in sin. Have you ever thought of that? Sin is fun, isn't it? Think of that time when you knew you were walking away from God, but you didn't care. Why? Because it was so pleasurable until the fruit came home or the harvest came around. And you suddenly realized, oh, man. When I was growing up, there were three diseases that you had to worry about if you were going to live outside of the bounds of what God had told us. And you could get a shot 
to cure all three. Today, there are women dying of cancer because there's a virus that can't be detected for 10 years. Well, why? Is it sent by God? No. But it is a warning from God. There are things that are being spread around our world that are just overwhelming us as a people. But we are just so complacent with our pleasure, we ignore the warning signs God has sent to us as a people, warning us we are destroying ourselves. And we are reveling, reveling, reveling in being rebels. When I turn on the TV these days, have you turned on the TV these days? There's an agenda by people who are leading our nation to make us think a certain way, act a certain way, believe a certain way. They are trying to lead us. And they're doing it by seduction. Oh, it's wonderful. It's normal. It's fun. It's pleasurable. Remember Duncan Hines? Remember them? Duncan Hines, they make cake products you can buy in the store. I knew our family was in trouble when I came across one that said, double rich chocolate cake. Devilishly good. Sinfully delicious. That appeals to me. Does it appeal to you? I mean, it's got to be good, right? It's sinful. <sighs> well, that was what was happening in the nation of Israel. People were being led down a path. They were being seduced in their complacency. And Moses had to come to them and say to the national leaders, you will be the first to suffer. Notice verse 7, we read it. You will be the first to be led away. In other words, how God was going to rescue the nation was he was going to raise up a nation who would come and conquer them and carry them into slavery. And the first people who will be in chains will be the very people who are responsible, responsible to tell the people, turn back to God. The people who will be led off by nose rings and a chain attached to the nose ring would be the very people who were feasting on bowls of wine and eating bonbons and growing fat on luxury couches. They would be brought to shame because they would be the first to feel the results of what they were choosing for themselves. And so how this is going to happen? Well, God reveals it in verse 8. Will you give me a little more time? Will you do that? Look at verse 8. Look how God paints this. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest the fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. What is God going to do? Out of great love, he's going to stop the sin. How will he do it? Here's the wild thing. We're not told. We only know that this foreign power will come and take over the nation. But as you look at all the nations around them, they are no better than Israel. In fact, they're a lot worse than Israel. 
They worship idols, and not only do they worship idols, they practice detestable things far worse than the people of Israel practice. And God's going to use that? How, how much irony is in that? God is going to use the very detestable things that are, are part of a world that has rejected him, the very people who will not bow down and worship him. He's going to raise up a nation of those kinds of people who are going to come to Israel, the people of God. And he's going to use those wicked people to bring his judgment upon a wicked family called the Israelites. And not only that, he says, I abhor their pride. What does he mean? He says, they don't have confidence in me. They have confidence in themselves. They are convinced that they have military might beyond measure. They can withstand every nation and fight them off. And therefore, we don't need God. And when you, think of, when you think of what's happening in our world, I heard this past week that it just absolutely stunned me. The Chinese are being accused of developing a new weapon that's called a hypersonic missile. Do you know what this means? If this is true, we are seeing for the first time in generations a foreign power being able to develop a missile that can be delivered without us ever seeing it come. It could be fired at one of our aircraft carriers in the, in the, in the uh, Persian Gulf. And if it's true, this missile could be delivered and destroy every man and woman on that particular ship, blowing it out of the water. And they will have never realized that it was ever fired at them. And so our nation now is kind of tumbling back saying, wait a minute, we, we, we've gone to all this effort to build up our military and, and spends all this money on armament and, and technology and suddenly we're realizing maybe we don't have the cutting technology we thought we had you say well Robert what's the point of that in the sermon it's simply to illustrate what was happening in Israel Israel believed they had the best technology and therefore because they had the best technology they trusted in their technology not in their God God says, I, I, I just abhor that. I detest your pride. What is, what is that so detestable to God? It's, it's Israel standing up and looking into the heavens at God and saying, we don't need you. We don't need you, God. And not only that, God reveals the outcome of that kind of thinking he reveals it in verses 9 through 11. He, he says, if 10 men are left in a house, they too will die. If a relative who is to burn the bodies comes and carries them out of the house and asks them, is to anyone still hiding there? Is anyone with you? And he says, no. Then he says, he, he will then say, shh, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. What, what's going on there? Well, it's interesting as a passage because if you had 10 men in a room, you were considered very powerful. You could fight off anyone. Defensively, you could take care of your own. But Amos is telling them there isn't enough power to overcome what God is going to allow to happen to you. And not only that, you won't have time to bury the bodies, which was the normal custom of that day. You'll have to burn the bodies, which was totally foreign to Israel thinking of how to bury the dead. But even worse... We won't pray to God or maybe acknowledge that 
this is happening because of our sins. Well, that just can't be because we've, we've sinned against the Lord. That can't be true. We didn't do that. You see what's happening? It's almost like uh, in that process of grief when you go through denial. It's just denial after denial. Well, this can't be happening. This pride that we have can't be the problem. We, we've been a great country. We've, we've been a powerful country. God says, because of your pride, because you do not worship and love me and serve the purpose that I have called you as a people, you, you will perish from the land. He's still going to hold them as his people. He still loves them. He still holds a remnant. But he's going to bring a judgment that will ultimately be the end of their existence in that, in that generation. And then finally this morning as we look at this, this act of God as, as far as his intervention and the sins of his people, God will put on display the folly of their arrogance. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever felt foolish after you did something? Have you ever said, man, I, that was so stupid? You ever done that? Um, I, I'll never forget. I don't know what it is about fire, but um, I, I'll never forget um, how, I, you know, one time you, you just think, I want this charcoal to, to burn, right? I want the burn. You know, those were the days when they didn't have the soaked briquettes that you could light. And, and so what did you do? You had a can of lighter fluid. And you take the can of lighter fluid and you're supposed to just spray it all over the charcoal and then light it. And just very poof, you know, just kind of poof. And it begins burning, right? Right? Not my friend, no. His conviction was you have a bag of charcoal, you have a whole can of fluid, you put both together all at one time. So he just doused the whole thing. I mean, he put that lighter fluid all over that grill. It was just everywhere. And I said, I said, Joe, I don't know if this is smart. He said, don't worry, I got it, right? And so as he's putting all this charcoal in and all this lighter fluid, I begin to step back. And no kidding, he goes up, stands right beside it and goes, whoosh, he had the nicest beard you've ever seen. <laughs> and it was singed, literally singed the curls all the way back to his cheek. He looked like, he looked like Pigpen on, on Charlie Brown. <laughs> and I said, Joe, I told you. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but I really thought I had this in, in my hand under control. Let me ask you do, you, do you think that way about God? Do you think that just because you've been in church this morning that somehow God is on your side? That you're right with God? Do, do you think that just because you've heard about Jesus, you are somehow immune to the consequences of sin? Because if you think that way, you're not thinking like a Christian. You're thinking like a consumer. A consumer is someone who goes to McDonald's to buy a hamburger. It doesn't make you a hamburger, does it? You see, what God desires from us is he desires a contrite heart, a heart that loves him. And the only way I can love God is when I tell him where I don't love him. Where I don't love him. James tells us this very clearly. He says, when you're tempted, 
in verse 6. He goes to chapter, uh, verse 9 of chapter 1. And he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because our reaction, our first reaction to anything is to do things in our own power, in our own way, in our own wisdom. And God says, you can't save yourself. You need me. So if you're dealing with a lust this morning, let me tell you, you can try to hold down your lust as hard and as strongly as you can, but you'll never defeat it. You'll never be able to take control of it because you can't. It has control of you. You need Jesus. And he wants to come into your heart and he wants to lead you, to lead you in the way of righteousness for his name's sake. You know what the real struggle with that is? There's a part of me that doesn't want to follow him. But there's another part that yearns. Oh, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Well, let me tell you, God loves you so much. He will not allow you to go down that road without putting warning signs and mile markers and shouts saying come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest do you, do you know him? would you like to know him? He, he's waiting with arms open for you He'll receive you no matter what you've done. And he'll hold you. And wash you and cleanse you and forgive you. But you have to ask. You have to ask him to do it. I can't do it for you. Amos could not do it for his people. They had to ask. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we, we have heard that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And to anyone who repents and believe in, believes in him, they would be included in the kingdom of heaven, that they would become sons and daughters of the Most High. There may be someone in the sound of my voice who's been resisting you for so long, and they need Jesus. They know they do but they're feeling the tremendous tear of what to do. My prayer, God, is that you would, you would allow them the gracious mercy of just reaching out by faith and taking hold of this promise. That anyone who confesses their sins and turns from them to the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. If you want to do that this morning, that's just the simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I realize I'm just like those Israelites. I have taken credit for my life. I have believed in my own strength and I know that I am utterly and completely separated from you. I don't want to be anymore. Would you please come and forgive me and come into my life? Would you start walking with me day by day and teaching me more and more of how to love you and follow you? I'm not perfect, Jesus. I don't know if I'll ever be perfect, but I trust that you can do something in me. And so I pray this prayer. And I ask you, 
take me as I am. And thank you for this promise that you receive me. We ask and pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. The people of God said together,